you know, there are moments in life. By the way, let me just, before I get into that, um, Lorinda and I may or may not be here um, at the end of this week into next week. We're hoping not to be here. Leela and Cody are in San Francisco right now at the University Hospital. Uh, they got into the McDonald's house, and so that baby, according to the schedule of the doctors, is supposed to be born on Thursday. But that baby has its own schedule and is going to come when it just darn well feels like coming. So anyway, uh, we're kind of like on flight notice right now. So when that baby's born, we're going to, well, Lorinda's got her stuff already packed. We're going to throw it in the car and we're going to beat across the beautiful state of northern Nevada. (laughs) So that's kind of the update. So if you don't see us around, um, keep your ears tuned to the news about what's going on with the babby and such. All right, now let's move on. Because there are moments in life that do take the wind out of our sails, like receiving the news, maybe for yourself or someone really close to you, that there's a life-threatening disease that you've just come down with. Or someone close to you has has had a... Uh, family that's torn apart, their life has been altered forever because of a tragic accident. Our hearts break when we hear of children who have been abducted or children who run away from their parents and the parents have no idea where they're at or what's going on in their lives and maybe never will hear from them again. We get sick to our stomach when we hear the report of children who are the victims of sexual assault. It rips our hearts out. More recently, when we heard about the five police officers who were killed in Dallas. And yet, in all of that, here stands the church. We're the church. Remember, we're the people that God has called, and we've experienced God's love, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness. We live in that realm of of knowing the goodness of God every day. And we stand in the middle of tragedy all around us. And what happens, what God's called us to do is is that when when those people have this, this stuff going on in their lives, these tragedies, they seemingly have no answer in their life. They're they're, they just It's the wind has been sucked out of their lungs. They have no hope. And God has, has called us, his church, to step right into all of that. And the reason we do is because what, what who Jesus is. I mean, it's just the most marvelous thing because Jesus gives us um, a picture of himself. He quoted from the prophet Isaiah in the Gospel of Luke about himself. Listen to these words, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, and that that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, for the for that he may be glorified. If that doesn't get you lit up, your wood's wet. Because, I mean, that's, that, that's what we need, right? I mean, we all need to, to have that experience of the comfort from Jesus because all of us experience tragedy some level, and we need that comfort. We need the oil of gladness. We need the garment of praise. We need liberty from those things that oppress us. We need to have our broken hearts mended and to receive some good news from Jesus himself because life is hard. And it oftentimes brings a lot of pain, even within the family unit. But then what do you do or what do we do as a church when people in the community of faith are abusing that goodness and that grace? How do we handle that? 
How are we supposed to respond? What are we supposed to say to those who are willingly, arrogantly, unashamedly flaunting willful, sinful behavior in the face of the church and the collective community at large? What do we do with that? Well, watch this. It'll give you an idea. Uh, Dr. Switzer? Uh, yes, C- come in. I'm just, just washing my hands. Uh, I'm Catherine Bigman. Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Uh, still being buried alive in a box. Yes, yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And uh, let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. <laughs> All right. (laughs) Go. (laughs) Go. Well, tell me. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, Well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. (laughs) I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has, has, has anyone ever, ever tried to, to bury you alive in a box? No. No, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm... Uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them into your life. Shall I uh, write them down? Well, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. We find most people can uh, can remember them. (laughs) Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, you're there. Stop it! Stop it? Yes. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you... you, you you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds, sounds frightening. <laughs> yes. Then stop it. I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. Well, I, I only have a five, so. Well, I, I don't, I don't make change. Then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you would you like to address? <clears throat> uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it. <laughs> I, I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me. No, fatty. no, no, no. No, we di- we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say. We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. What? What? What else? 
Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yes. Well, then stop it. <laughs> don't be such a big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. There's a lot of germs out there. Uh -huh. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! How are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook! Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Kathy? I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. All right, then let me, uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I, I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want to you get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right, here are the ten words. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box! So, now you know the words that I want to say to everybody that's so arrogantly and unashamedly living a life that just is blazing sin right in front of God. I want to yell at them, stop it, just, just stop it. I mean, the truth is, is if you really want to know what someone thinks or how they they see God or what they believe about Jesus, all you do is watch what they do. The words out of their mouth are cheap. The actions that they portray in their life will tell you everything you need to know about them. And, and that's kind of as we step into this fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we're going to find Paul having to deal with a, such a blatant disregard to sinful behavior. He's just flabbergasted by the whole thing. And, and what he says, said then is still applicable to us today. And as we look at this chapter, we'll discover that Paul is addressing two issues. The first problem is with an immoral man. And the second, maybe more importantly, is the issue of the failure of the church to take sin seriously. So we're going to look at the first two verses of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The phrase here, it is actually reported, means that, it's, that this immorality is well known. It's, it's, it's a public thing. This is no secret scandal. It's on the front page of the Corinthian times. To make matters worse, this immorality is of a son having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. When you look at that, you notice that Paul calls the woman the man's mother, doesn't call the woman the man's mother. Instead, he uses the phrase father's wife, which in the Old Testament usage means stepmother. If it was the mom... He'd say having sex with his mom. But it's his stepmother, the father's wife. And, and what makes this sin so abhorrent is that this type of behavior wasn't even, even tolerated amongst unbelievers in Corinth. They were like going like, have you lost your mind? You don't do that stuff. You want to talk about giving a, a black eye to the cause of Christ? That's it. The immorality was not a one-night stand followed by a broken-hearted repentance, which would have resulted in a different response from Paul anyway. But there was no repentance, no fleeing from this immorality. In fact, there is not only no repenting, there is brazen boasting. Verse, show, verse 2 shows us how the church responded to the immorality 
in the church and how it should have responded. And here's what he says. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Obviously, the sin we've been discussing here should have been an outrage to the Corinthians. In fact, if you really think about it, your stomach's probably turning about right now anyway. So how did the Corinthians respond to the scandal? Well, we see that the Corinthians responded with pride, disobedience. It's important to see that Paul does not attack the man guilty of the atrocity. Instead, he rebukes the church for allowing the immorality to go unchecked. It, 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 the guy, yeah, he's made a mess of things. I mean, he's done something that, that even in the larger community of immoral, immoral behavior, they don't even tolerate. But the, the, the shame comes on the church leaders and the church people for going like, yeah, dude, it's cool, you know, hang five or whatever, whatever they did in Corinthia. And it's likely that the Corinthians were not just boasting about the immorality. They were boasting also in his social status. You know, the son of this man, he's, 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 he's a great guy. Oh, he's so, so good while ignoring the offense altogether. It's, when, when you go to the hospital and you find out you've got cancer, anything else you brag about doesn't matter. You don't want to brag about your bank account. You don't want to brag about the neighborhood that you live in. You don't want to brag about your good looks or your spouse's good looks. You don't want to brag about the car you drove to the hospital in. The only thing that matters and is relevant is that there is cancer in you. And the one thing that you want most is to get this mess out of my body. What is true of the individual is also true of the church. If a man or woman in our church is in sin, and and I'll I'll talk about that in a minute, it doesn't matter how much money they make, where they work, where they live, or what they drive. The only thing that is relevant is they have a spiritual cancer. And it needs to be eradicated. Now, Paul's really ticked at this church. Because they haven't mourned one little bit. And and so the question is, what should they have mourned? Paul expected them to grieve over the shame brought to the church by the deviant behavior. Instead, instead, they're dismissing the sin or boasting in the person and the sin he's in. And God expects the church of Jesus to deal with sin. God calls us to purge the church of sin for the church stands or falls together. Just think about it. Mainline churches over the last 60 years have hit the slippery slopes and now everything goes. No bars hold. You do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good, whatever floats your boat, you go ahead and do it because God's going to be all groovy with that. God's got something else to say about that. And he's not none too happy about it. So what's the right course of action in case of a blatant rebellious sin? Far too often churches take a stand of church discipline that is weak and ineffective. Their posture is something like this. Well, we don't want to point our finger at them. We certainly don't want to be the judge. And by the way, who are we to cast the first stone? You know, let's just show them some grace in this supposed humility is made on the base of tolerance of brazen, defiant immorality in the church. On the other hand, today in a church, if a church does follow through with discipline, it is often condemned as coming straight from the pharisaical pride. Indignation at sin is often portrayed as a cloak of insecurity. And an attempt to shift the spotlight off of some other area to some individual. It's kind of the holier-than-thou attitude is said to be the basis of of the indignation. And arrogance is said to be the basis of ejection out of the church. And you know what? That may be true in a lot of places. I can't deny it. 
But if we follow the intent behind the command, we'll find something out that is far, has a far greater reach than what we were thinking. This isn't an authoritative power struggle to try and keep people in their place, to keep the church's appearance nice and shiny, and that has no problem, people. I mean, just take a look around for crying out loud. Look at your problem neighbor and say, man, am I glad you're here today. Only two people did it. Everybody else is going like, I'm not talking to them. So here's the intent behind the whole thing. The intent of this command of dealing with sin is to redeem and restore the person caught in sin into a healthy relationship with God. That's the whole purpose. There's, there's no underlying other current going on or agenda. Paul is simply saying, we're going to deal with this because we want to restore this man back to God. Right now, he's out of fellowship with God. And if he's out of fellowship with God, he should be out of fellowship with us. Now, Paul also, he's talked about this kind of stuff throughout the letters he wrote to the churches. And then when he wrote his letter to the Galatians church in the sixth chapter, he said this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. All right. Now, my version up here that I put on the screen for you and the one that I'm preaching out of says transgression. I've said this before, and so I'm going to go back and I'm just going to repeat myself because I'm getting old. And that's what old people do, is they repeat themselves. Right, Phil? Yeah, there we go. So, there, there's three kinds of sin. There's your every run-of-the-day kind of meal kind of sin that we just do. It, it, we just, it's, you know, we're walking down the street, and um, we found a wallet on the street, and so we plucked the money out of the wallet, and then we took the wallet to the police department, handed it in, and the person that got their wallet back goes, by the way, did you see any money in the wallet? And we say, no. We lied. We didn't intend to lie. We didn't intend to steal. The temptation was just there and we just stepped right into it instead of doing the right thing. That's sin. Then you have um, iniquity. Iniquity is that, that sin that you have is, is your default button. So... Everybody has a default sin that they go to. For some people, it's gossip. Other people, it's lying. Maybe it's stealing. Maybe it's, it's pornography or sexual sins. Whatever it is, we have a default button. And whenever we get into a place where we're, we're lacking sleep, we're uh, tense, we're having fights, we're not, things aren't going well, we step back into our default button and we hit it. And that's the sin we step into. That's iniquity. We are born in iniquity. That's what David says in Psalm 51. And then there's transgression, this word that we have right here before us. Transgression is that premeditated sin. It's that sin that this young lad who is in the church has already committed. He's going and he's going, you know what? Mom died when I was 14. Now I'm 23. And dad married a gal that's like 27 and she's hot. And so because I've been pumping iron down at the gym and I'm on steroids, I'm going to go steal my dad's girlfriend, wife. It's premeditated adultery. That's what he does. It's a premeditated thought. And so what Paul is saying here in Galatians on transgressions is go to those people who have that premeditated sin that they're always continually living in and your job is to restore them gently. But, I like it when he says that, beware because you could fall into the same temptation they're in. That's why you're supposed to send spiritual people. People who have been walking with God for some time have the ability to go like, all right, we're going into a situation. I need to have my prayer warriors praying for me back at the house so that when I go in and I talk to this guy, I'm not going to step into the same crud he's in. And so that's how what Paul's calling us to do. And I think there are a lot of churches that don't want people in their buildings who have obvious sin problems. Now, now Paul's not talking about the people that just, like us, we're just regular old kind of sinner folks that have become saints through the grace of God, right? That's who we are. And we're going to sin. We don't want to, 
We hate it when we do it. We repent of it when it happens. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a guy who has this ongoing sexual relationship with his dad's wife, and he's flaunting it in front of the church. He He's coming in, and he's going like, I'm such a stud. And they're going, you're nothing but mud. That's what they should be saying to him. But he's he's flaunting it in front of them. And so they've done nothing about this public, ongoing, sinful situation in the church. They're just ignoring it. And they may even be using Scripture inappropriately to back it up. What do I mean by that? Paul said that they were arrogant. Now, understand that, that Paul wrote a bunch of letters to different churches around Asia, Asia Minor area. And so once they got done reading the letter to the particular church it was sent to, the, the, the instructions were to send it on to the next church so that they could read it and they could learn from it. And so there is a good chance that they received the letter maybe that Paul wrote to Romans, to the Roman church. But in Romans, what does it say? It says that let us sin that grace may abound. Wrong. Not going to happen. And then it, it, it's this theology of misunderstanding the power of grace and it turns it into a license. It's a theology that misunderstands freedom and uses it as an opportunity for the flesh. And as they were saying it, Corinth, all things are lawful for me. So they were boasting in their freedom and in the tolerance of grace. But here's the deal. Pride was the basis of sinful tolerance not pharisaical judgment. They're just, they're abusing the grace of Jesus. Not just the, the perpetrator, the man, but also the church, because they've not done us one lick of a thing about it. They have, they've turned a blind eye to it. They like the young guy. They think he's cool. They think he drives a nice chariot. You know, he's got a nice bank account. He's got a lot of slaves. There's a social status that comes with having this dude in our church, man. We can't do anything about that. All right, so let's move on. Let's go on to verses 3 through 5. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such thing. I'm stopping there. That was verse 3. You know, I I don't know if you ever um, have read up on who Paul was. He wasn't a big man. He was a small kind of a guy. He was, I'm average, okay? It says so in the back of my shirt, M for medium, another word for average. So I'm average. He was small, you know? So we have small Paul, but, but here's the deal about small Paul. He, he walked softly and carried a big stick. And he let them have it with that big stick because he, he, he was going like, you guys have really got this thing messed up. And so he's already made a judgment about this man. And, and, and it's, it's really significant. He doesn't call them into his office, the immoral couple for extensive marriage counseling, because they're not married. They're having sex outside of the confines of marriage. That is all the information Paul needs. And Paul's already judged the man. But notice that he doesn't say anything about the woman. Huh? How does she get a free pass? Well, I'm going to tell you. She wasn't a part of the church. Oh, yeah. See, the light bulb just went on. Yeah, that's right. She's not part of the church. So the principle of not judging those outside of the church, we're going to bring that up a little bit later. But Paul, get this. I want you to hear this. You may even want to write this down, like, you know, somewhere where it's not going to wash off other than your hand. So... Paul actually expects Christians, Christ followers, to judge one another. And you guys are going, now wait a minute. That's not what Jesus said. And I think I'm going to go with the Jesus card here. Because in Matthew 7, in chapter 1, Jesus said, Judge not, lest you be judged. You know what? That's the most famous verse on the planet now. It's quoted around the world. But you know what? Here's the other problem with that. They take that totally out of the context of what Jesus was saying. You get pluck this little thing out and just, you know, 
Make whatever you want to about it. What Jesus was saying is, no, you can judge, but you need to judge yourself first. You need to make sure you got your poop in the group before you go after that other guy. You need to make sure that before you go and try and pull that speck of dust out of his eye, you're taking the redwood sequoia log out of your eye. Then go and make a judgment. But Jesus doesn't want hypocritical judgment going on. He wants it true and honest. And he wants us to do it. It's a big deal. Now, Paul, in verses 4 and 5, he says this. He, he actually specifies what appropriate judgment on the immoral man should entail. He put it like this. In the name, that is the authority, of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. How many of you are going like, yeah, that's really cool. Sign me up. I want to be handed over to Satan. Nope. Nobody's going like, that's the train I want to be on. That, that's a really bad deal. When Paul, Paul comes to this thing. He is so fuming mad at the church. He's telling them, you know what you need to do with that guy? Because he is, he is flaunting this in your face. You need to hand him over to Satan. And we all go like, well, he's not playing nice. Well, hello? I mean, there, there are some things going on here. So when he says to deliver, turn, hand over a person to Satan, it means two things. To dismiss that person from the church into the world is putting them back into the realm of Satan. The primary meaning of the destruction of flesh is the purging of the man's sinful propensity. The, first, the, the phrase does not necessarily refer to his physical body being destroyed. The goal is this man's repentance and restoration to the church family. And if he refuses the, to repent, God's going to get after him. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. It is a far greater danger to be released into the hands of the living God than to have this little minion Satan poking at you and trying to turn you around. Satan, he can only do what he, God gives him authority to do. But God, he controls the lightning bolts. So if you're off messing around and doing something that is rebellious by nature and rebellion is as witchcraft, God's a pretty good shot with the old lightning thing. You better be careful. You could go up in a puff of smoke. And, and so you better just kind of take note of that stuff because when Paul typically designates flesh and spirit as a whole person as viewed from different angles, so he's got the spirit and he's got the flesh. So let me help you understand this. Spirit means the whole person as oriented towards God. Flesh means the person oriented away from God. And he wants that to be coming to where our, our orientation is with God. And so the destruction of the flesh is the same thing as take up your cross daily and crucify your flesh. That's what it means. By putting this man outside of the church community, Paul's seeking to destroy what is fleshly in him with the purpose of having the spiritual in him come out. The goal is for this man to be delivered, restored, or to be found healthy and whole in the day that the Lord Jesus comes back. I mean, that's the whole goal, is not to let this fool keep going down the path of destruction, but to turn him back. I think he shows us in this case that there is something more happening as well, something that takes the power of Jesus to perform. Paul did it at least one other time that we know about, written in, in the Word. In 1 Timothy 1, he says, I have handed over Hymenius and Alexander to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So Paul's already done this one other time. Now, let me help you understand some of this because you're going like, Man, that's, that's really harsh. That's really cruel. I don't know if that's the God. I, I like the God that just loves people. I like the God that just kind of winks at it when I screw up. Like, you know, an old grandpa, you know. Yeah, it's no big deal kind of thing. That's the God I like. Well, if that's the God you want, he's not found in the Bible. Okay? 
So let me help you to understand this because what seems to be in view is something like what happened in the book of Job. This is the only other place in the whole Bible outside of Paul's letters where handing over someone to Satan is identified. And, and here's what it says in Job 2. And the Lord said to Satan, stop right there. Okay, God's having a conversation with Satan in heaven, in the throne room. Some of you are going like, what? I thought he lived in hell. Not yet. That's at the end of this book. Okay? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he, Job, is, your, uh, is in your hand. Only spare his life. So <laughs> do whatever you want to to him. But you can't kill him. Anybody here want to sign up to be Job? I didn't think so. Me either. The next verse says, So Satan went from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. That just, you, you, you got to be going like, I mean, if you're like me, I'm going, God, you're not playing fair. You're not. This doesn't feel right. This doesn't seem like something a God of love would do. But God has a purpose in mind in everything that he does. It's for his glory and for our good. And here's what it is. So in verse in chapter 42, God's gracious purpose is exposed through what Job has to say. He says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you see what happened? This, you have, if you've not read the book of Job, you need to read it. Because if you think you've got a crummy life, you'll have a different perspective on your own life. You're going to go like, man, I'm so thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for my friends. And I'm thankful that I live in the New Testament era of grace. Because Job went through some stuff. And it was for God's glory. And in the end, he says, I repent. And so Satan became the means under God's sovereign control of purifying Job's heart and bringing him closer than ever to God. This is not the only place that God uses Satan to do that. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul describes his thorn in the flesh as a messenger of Satan, which God appoints for Paul's humility and Christ's glory. Verse 7 says this, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me, given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Wow. This is, this is Paul. And you know what he did? He's going like, man, this is just driving me crazy. I got to get rid of this thing. And so he prayed earnestly three times to Jesus. And what Jesus say? Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. God's glory comes alive in our weakness, in our suffering. You know, um, when Leela found out that her, her baby had the issues going on that was going on and, and it was devastating. I mean, our whole family was devastated. Tears, rivers of tears flowed. And at one point, because the enemy wants to come in and tell us lies, whisper lies to us and tell us that you did something and this is God's punishment on your life for whatever it is that you did. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. That is not true. Just because I'm a pastor and just because my kids love Jesus and they've walked with Jesus most of their lives and they're doing the right things doesn't make us exempt from the tragedies of life. We don't say, why me? We should be saying, why not me? Because where is a better place for God's glory to be revealed than in the life of a believer going through one of the most significant difficulties of life? It's for God's glory. I don't know what's going to happen. 
But I want to be like Job at the end of the day. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And yet I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Regardless. Now, when Paul prayed, you know, notice that this, the, this one who is in control, whether the messenger of Satan, it is Jesus who is in control of the whole thing. It is, it, whether Satan has any ability or not, it all goes under the authority of Christ. And that's why it is so significant in our text with verse 4. When Paul says that the handing, handing someone over to Satan is with the power of the Lord Jesus. We don't have the power. We don't have the authority in ourselves to do it. We can ask Jesus to do it for us. Because he's the only one that's got that power and authority. The pride of the Corinthians was that they, they could have, they, they saw themselves that they were having Jesus as the one who pardoned sins, but they rejected him as the one who purifies. He's both and. You can't get away from that side of Jesus. Okay, let's move on to verses 6 through 8. Um, and I, that's just my introduction, by the way. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out old leaven that you may be new, a new lump. As you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's what Paul's saying about the church, is that when the church turns a blind eye to blatant sin within the church, what we're doing is we're giving an giving open door for sin to run freely within the whole group. It's like leavened bread is flat bread. There's no yeast in it. But if you leave a little bit of yeast in the bowl, as soon as you mix it in there, you've ruined the flat bread. It's going to have yeast in it, and it's not going to be what it was meant to be. And so when we have sin, if we allow just one person to blatantly flaunt their sinful behavior within the church, that's the yeast, and it's going to ruin the church. Because all of a sudden, we're all going to go like, well, if he can do that, well, surely I can do this. Because what I'm doing over here isn't nearly as bad as that, and nobody's saying anything about that guy, so nobody's going to say anything about what I'm doing. And it just starts to go, and it's a bad deal all the way around for the church. It is not giving us what we need to do in being men and women of God. All it takes is a little ignoring, continual sinful behavior for, for of one for the rest of the church to be participating in disobedience to God. That's why it's important for us to keep each other accountable. Accountability is a huge thing within the body of Christ. And, and here's the deal. If you know someone or you see someone who has a continual, habitual, sinful issue going on in their life that they're not dealing with and, and you know about it, don't come to Pastor John and me and tattletale on them. Because we're going to say to you, well, you go and talk to them. I, I'm not the principal. He's not the vice principal of the school. This is not the playground where you come in and go, Billy just kicked me in the shins. We're going to tell you, here's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. You go, because you're a spiritual one, and you go and see what you can do to help that person repent of their sin and come back to the body of Christ in full fellowship with Jesus. And if you come back to us and go, I've gone three times and I can't get anywhere with this knucklehead, we'll say, all right, we're going to pile in your car with you and we're going to go with you and we're going to go knock on his door. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to say, na, 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 na. See you later, dude. Okay? Because what, what we're talking about here is really important that we deal with the sin issue in truth and love, graciously, but firmly. Grace is not a marshmallow. It's a foundation. And that's what we have to deal with. I'm going to press on. Can you hang in there for a few more minutes? 
All right, hey, if you have to go, just get up and leave. Nobody's going to watch you, I promise. All right, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, I'm going to stop right there because um, that kind of caught me a little bit off guard, so I did a little bit of background research on the whole thing. Well, apparently, um, many, most of the New Testament scholars say that Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. And the ones we have, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, are the only two that made it in. And so when he says, I wrote a letter, I wrote in my letter not to associate, he's referring to the letter that he wrote before this one, to the church. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy or and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All right. So I want to hit this up real quick because this is really important because they, they misunderstood Paul in his first letter. And, and he, it wasn't that he didn't want them to have any association with people who were immoral. Because guess what? Well, everybody outside of the, the walls of the church, they're immoral. They're sinners. And you know, when sinners sin, they are merely doing what they're sp- supposed to do. Sin is a part of the sinner's job description. The difference between a sinner and a saint is that we don't have to sin anymore. They do. They can't help it. That's just part of who it is. And that means that our ministry is not to spend our time judging the world. That's left to God. It's none of our business. Too often, we want to preach against the wrong sin. It's easy to stand up in the pulpit and to talk about what's going on in Washington or with pro-choice or with the ACLU or even more recently with Black Lives Matter. But we're not to judge those. Don't ever get mad at the world for acting like the world. What else are they going to do? We need to confront the sin within the four walls of our churches, within the lives of the people who we minister with and to. That's our ministry. We're to protect the widows, the orphans, and the helpless. But we are not the judge of those outside the four walls of the church. So I've got another stop it. If you're doing that, if you're looking at all those sinful people that are hanging out at the bars and doing all kinds of stupid stuff, and they're just acting like a bunch of sinful morons, and you want to judge them for that and tell them that, that you know, you're going to go to hell for doing that. Well, stop doing that. You're not helping anything. And by the way, when, when it says the, the, the word associate, associate, that means to keep intimate company with. And so when Paul's talking about don't associate with the immoral brother in the church or sister, he's saying don't keep intimate company with that doesn't mean that you don't speak to them ever again it doesn't mean that when you see that rebellious brother or sister you walk the other way it doesn't mean that you get mean and hard and cruel with them what it does mean is there is no intimate fellowship you don't sit down and break bread together with them you don't sit around and sing worship songs together with them because they are out of fellowship with christ and therefore out of fellowship with his church Paul says this in in chapter 5, at the end of it. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. As Christ's followers, we have no jurisdiction over the outsiders. We have no business usurping the task that belongs to God. Those outside are left in God's hand. The church has a responsibility to seek to win them over, not nag them, not browbeat them, not control them. And many of us are trying to to clean up the world's fishbowl when all God asks us to do is fish. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So if you've been spending your time trying to scour the world, put down your scrub brush, pick up your fishing pole and go for fish. Now, there's one important question that remains. Why should the church participate in church discipline? 
I mean, the reality is, is if you call somebody out on their sin, all they have to do is do this to you, go, and walk down the street to the next church. That's what happens, particularly in our community. Because what? In our community, there are 26 churches in this community. So, I mean, you've got a long road of hopping to different churches until you're found out, right? So why would we continue to participate in church discipline if it seems not to do anything? Well, it does do something. The reason why we do it is first and foremost is to glorify God. Paul told the Corinthian church a little bit later on, he says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, Whatever it is you do, do it for the glory of God. That includes church discipline. That includes calling people out on sin. That includes getting up in somebody's grill. Because I'm going to tell you from personal experience, when you call somebody out on sin, when you get up in their mud and you start talking to them, and and the the only reason, listen, I don't go and do that stuff because I have a a, a great propensity for people to get mad at me and, and tell me what kind of a lousy pastor I am and walk out the door and slam it in my face and then go and spread rumors around me, about me around town. That is, that's not on my job description as a pastor. But if you love people the way Jesus has called you to love them, then you are going to step up, you're going to press hard in on them, and you're going to call some stuff out in their lives because it is for the glory of God. The second reason is because we are called to be holy like God. And if we allow this stuff just to go on, all we're doing is rolling around in the mud, in the pig pen. And we think we're pretty cool because we're running around with the pigs. It reflects nothing of the holiness of God. And that's why we enter into church discipline. It purifies the church. It's, It's like cancer. We can't grow if there's sin cancer blooming up around us. And we need to, we need to remove that through repentance. We want, the reason we do church discipline is to restore the sinner back into fellowship with Jesus and with us. We want to deter the rest of the church from going down that dirty, rotten path. We want you to know, you go down that path, you know what's through that door? My office. And John will be in there waiting for you. (laughs) We want to restore. We want to deter. We also want to maintain a credible witness before the world. Because I'm going to tell you something. You don't know it. But they're watching you. They're looking to see what you do. They're looking to see how we respond. They've got their ears to the ground. They've got the pulse of this church going on. They know the things that are going on. They probably know more stuff going on in this church than I do. Well, of course, that's true because pastors always last to know. But, so they're watching to see how we handle things. And if our lives are no different than their lives, why would they come and be a part of this mess? Now, we are a mess. But we're a mess that's being transformed by the Spirit of God to become in the image of Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's right. And that's what we want. I mean, I'm, I, I just, we have got to do what we were called to do by Jesus within the four walls of the church because what we do here matters out there. And that's a big deal. Now, I know some of you are sitting here going like, so... What's the sin that gets you hauled into the office? Well, listen, if you're speeding through town and you're doing 45 in a 30, and you get pulled over and you're given a ticket, we're not hauling your hiney up here. Your name's going to be in the paper and everybody will see it anyway. We don't care. Pay the fine. The civil court will handle your problem. So let me tell you what the Bible lays out is. It's kind of the thing that is going to get you kind of... Mm, in, in a bad way. All right. I think I already moved that paper to the wrong spot. I'll, I'll just make it up then. <laughs> divisiveness. When somebody was in the, is in the body of Christ who brings division in the church and they are trying to tear the church apart, 
We warn them once, we warn them twice, and then they get the right foot of fellowship. Conflict between believers. When two believers do not settle a dispute privately and it spills over into the church, the leadership has to get involved, and we are going to get involved. Doctrinal deviation. If there's false teaching going on, we hear someone in the small groups teaching some heresy. We're going to come down there with a bucket of gasoline and we're going to torch you. Not physically. That, that was just kind of a metaphor, okay? No, we're, we're, we're going to bring you back to the Word of God and what the Word of God has to say because God's Word is truth. The stuff you may be teaching could be 100% pure crap. And we are going to deal with that because it doesn't belong in the church. All right. So I'm going to find my... Oh, yeah, here's the last page. All right. How many of you got the reflective questions when you came in? A little half piece of paper. How many need it? Put your hand up. Terrell and Tyson, just hand them out to people that want to take a look. Some of you are going like, I don't want to look at those questions. They're going to be hard. Darn tootin' they are. Hand them out. Here's the bottom line. John talked about this at the beginning. If there was some condemnation coming towards you today, that is not from the Spirit of God and that's not from me. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. If you felt conviction, that's from the Holy Spirit. That's not from me because I don't play the role of the Holy Spirit either. I, 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 that's not my job. So um, if you feel convicted, that means God's calling you to do something today. You need to respond to him. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. There isn't a single person who sits in this room who is exempt from having sin in their life. And... and if you're sitting there and you're going like, man, I've got this sin going on in my life and I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know what to do with it. And yet, I don't want to say anything because why? What happens if you say something? What's the fear? The fear is if they find out what my sin is, they're going to kick my hindquarters out the door. That is not what we're going to do. I tell you the honest truth as Jesus is my witness. If, however, you have a sin that you're going to flaunt in front of the church and when someone corners you on it and says, listen, brother, sister, here's an issue in your life that you need to deal with. This is something that I know that is a sin and you know it's a sin too and you are not doing anything about it. And if they say, mind your own damn business, then you just look at them and go like, I am. Because you are my business. You are my brother. You are my sister. And Christ has called me to step up into here. He has called me to call you out on your sin for your good, for God's glory, for righteousness, for repentance. We've all got sin in our lives. I've got it. I swear I sinned about five times on the way to the office at five in the morning. The traffic was terrible. Just kidding. All right. So here's, here's the questions. Now, normally what I do is I give you this piece of paper and say, reflect on it at home. Work on it throughout the week. Today it's different. Because you look at that first question right there. What sin has a lifelong hold on your life that you need to put to death? That calls for immediate repentance. If something came to your mind, write it down for Pete's sake and say like, God, forgive me. You can't walk out the door going with this gnawing feeling in your gut going like, I should have done something. Today is the day of repentance, my friends. Repent of that sin. What would happen if that sin were to come out into the open? All of a sudden, not going to happen, just saying. But if God did, all of a sudden, a name and a sin came to light. And I just went like, mm, what? Mm, ah. And you would go like, 
one of two things would happen. You'd either run out the back of that door and never come back here again. Or if it was the Spirit of God that was really, truly working, you'd fall on your knees in repentance and ask for forgiveness of sin. So what would happen if this one... I believe that we all have one sin, at least one sin, that just gets us. Remember? Transgression. Or maybe it's our iniquity, the one that we just have this great propensity to go back and hit that reset button and sin all over again. What is it? Write it down. What happens if that comes to light? Is it going to ruin your family? Is it going to ruin your career? Is it going to ruin your life? Is it going to disqualify you from ministry? So here's, here's where we go to change that. Third question. Who is the person that holds you accountable to keeping your promise you made to Jesus every time you've fallen back into sin? Because, listen, you're talking to a guy that's done it. I've sinned on certain sins a number of times. And again, I go and... Listen, can I get really honest with you guys? I, I need some permission here. If you don't like honesty, just go behind... Doors. And don't fire me either, okay? I'm taking, a, I'm being a little bit vulnerable here, because there are sin. I'm not going to tell you what the sin is, so don't even, don't even guess, okay? But there are sins. There's, there's sin that is a problem, cyclical. And when I sin, you know what the first thing is? God must hate my guts. God must think I'm the biggest loser on the planet. God must just think I am, I'm not even worth anything. I'm worthless to God. Because that's what we think when we go back and we commit that sin again. We do it again. And we go back and we go like, I'm no good. Why do I even try? God, why do you even care? That's the lie. The truth is he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he, you, can, you can bring that thing to him all day long. He's going to answer still the same as the last time. I forgive you. You're forgiven. You're loved. You're forgiven. You're loved. It's there every time. Because we fall back. We, we, we make this promise to Jesus. I'll never do it again. Jesus goes, I love you, but you know you're going to. And when, he, when we do, when we fall in the muck and the mire... We don't get ourselves up. He reaches down. He grabs us. He takes us over. He turns the shower on. He shoves us in there. He washes us off. He pulls us back out. He gives us a big hug. He gives us new clothes. He says, go get them. Every time. Every time. So let me ask you that question. Is there someone in your life that holds you accountable to that issue? Now, I've got I, I to gotta help you out here. And I know I'm, I'm going way over today, but I think this is really important. Okay? Because I might not be here next week, and so you need to get, you know. All right. So, when you find, if you don't have someone that holds you accountable to things, you've got to find the right person. Don't just go up to somebody you've never met in the church before and go, hey, you want to hear my dirty secret little sin? Because they're going to go, yes. (laughs) Who doesn't? So find the right person, someone that you know or you think might be trustworthy to hold your information in the vault. The vault is the place where it never comes out of. You put it in the vault, it stays there. And tell the person that asked you to put it in the vault, says you can release it from the vault. Find that person. Number two, these are two hard and fast rules. That rule you have to have. The second rule is you can only have an accountability partner of the same gender. Do not hook up with someone of the opposite sex because all that's going to do is create a whole bunch more sin. And we're trying to prevent that. We're, we're working towards getting us whole, healthy, accountable, 
And, and nobody's going to know your sin or your secret things except that person that holds you accountable. And they're the kind of person that loves you so much, they're going to ask you the hard question about that sin you identify to them. You are going to have a conversation with them that is most uncomfortable ever in the world, but it's going to come to light. And when it's to light and they know about it, you will be free. All right, so who's the person? Write it down. Now listen, if you don't have an accountability partner, what's keeping you from finding one? Maybe you don't know anybody in the church. Maybe you, you're reluctant to find somebody. Listen, we have deacons, we have deaconesses, we have elders, we have people in ministry areas, we have people that are trustworthy. You don't have somebody and you want somebody, talk to John or talk to myself. And we will get you connected with someone who will meet with you on a regular basis and help you walk through life. I'm not even going to call it the credit of life. It's just life. It's what we do. So here's how I want to close. It's how I began. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, said Jesus, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. You are the oaks of righteousness. Amen? All right, Father, whew, we went through a lot of it today. And um, if I lost somebody along the way, I trust that you brought them back. I pray, God, that what, we have, what we've talked about today is the family, the things, the hard issues, the sin and the belligerent sin and all the rest of that, and having an accountability partner would not escape our attention, but that we would step up. We would find men and women who will... Love us enough to hold us accountable to the things that you're calling us to to get away from and then to step into in Jesus. And so guide our thoughts, our steps, our process in this. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.